Thank you so much, Candice. Isn't it good to be in the presence of the Lord this morning? Amen. In His presence, there's fullness of joy. And the psalmist says that at His right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. God is good. And all the time. Amen. For a moment, I thought when the ushers were going to come around with the offering baskets, they were going to call Sean and Tanil up. <laughs> Good to have the ushers in the building this morning. Amen. Good to see you. Good to see you all, friends and family. Always good being in the presence of God. A famous preacher back in the day. You uh, went by the title, the Prince of Preachers. C.H. Uh, Spurgeon. Charles Haddon Spurgeon. One of the greatest preachers who have ever existed. And he left to us volumes of sermons. And he's famous for saying, put no idler behind the pulpit. Because to have an idler behind the pulpit is to have an instrument of Satan in damning the souls of men. The ministry requires heart work and brain labor. And so it is by no light responsibility that I stand here this morning to open up the wondrous word of God. Amen. Amen. We are on our second psalm. It's my goal and my heart to preach through all 150 psalms in my lifetime. So if you journey with us, we are journeying into a place where the Lord said he will give to us. Amen. 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 Psalm chapter 2, if you'll just turn there. With me, please. We're going to dive straight in. You know, my, my wife takes her role as a timekeeper very serious. I think Pastor Clinton is still scarred and bruised. When I saw him last week getting to the Bible timeline, I knew he's not coming out in time. <laughs> I just knew it. And uh, when he had 15 minutes left, he hadn't yet touched his sermon. So I'm going to try and spare you the the agony and myself okay if you buy Psalms chapter 2 please give me an amen amen, amen. Uh, please I'll encourage you to go back to our Podbean app and listen to Psalm 1 in Psalm 1 uh, we did a lot of work laying down the groundwork uh, for our, our preaching on Psalms so I might just touch here and there on a few on a few points, uh, but I'm not going to labor on them because we need to get into uh, the sermon this morning. Can you believe I was busy with psalms for you know, at least 20 hours and I'm struggling to find it here. <laughs> at least 20 hours this week. Okay, there we go. It's in the middle, eh? <laughs> Uh, if, 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 if your pages are sticking together, you are in trouble. <laughs> you are in big trouble. You have a lot to answer for. Okay. There we go. It's on page. It's on page 618. Amen. There we go. Let's read. Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, 
Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree the Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore be wise, O kings, be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. When his wrath is kindled, but a little. Blessed, blessed are those are all those who put their trust in him. Amen. Oh, blessed to us the reading of his word. Psalm 2 is the most quoted psalm in the entire New Testament. It's quoted by Peter and John in Acts chapter 4. It's quoted by Paul in Acts chapter 13. By the writer of Hebrews in chapter 1 and chapter 5. Again, it's quoted in Revelations chapter 2, Revelations 12, and Revelations 19. Just as Psalm 1 is without a superscription informing us who is the author, Psalm 2 is also without a superscription. And like we said when we addressed Psalm 1 the last time, uh, we spoke is that these two psalms serve as double doors to the Psalter. They are two foundational psalms and the Psalms actually begin as Psalm 3. The book of Psalms are comprised and compiled and divided into five books. And we explained it the last time, so I encourage you to get back uh, to Psalm 1 if you need to. But the Holy Spirit, by divine inspiration, according to Acts chapter 4, informed us who the author was. If you read verse 25 of Acts chapter, Acts chapter 4, Peter quotes this particular psalm and says that when they had heard that, when they had prayed to God in one accord, they prayed and said, Lord, you are God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything that is in them, who by the mouth of your servant David has said, why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? So now we know that the author is David. Knowing the author helps us to locate this particular psalm in an historical timeline. We now know that this particular psalm was recorded during the reign of David, the dynasty of David. So between David being king and the first deportation to Babylon, this particular psalm was written. And there's no general consensus on the historical context of the psalm. There's a lot of debate by scholars and theologians 
as to what occasioned the writing of the psalm. Some say it's, uh, it was a time when David gained victory over the Philistines. That's the reason why he wrote this particular psalm. Some say that it can be referred to 1 Chronicles 17 when God uh, made a covenant with David and David said in his heart, I want to build the Lord a house. And God was so moved by this motivation of David and what was in the heart of David that he said, David, you, you won't build me a house because you, you are a man of blood, of, of war, but your son will. And because you've, you've offered to build me a house, he will build my house, but I will build your house. And I don't want to go off on a rabbit trail here, but if you build God's house, he will build yours. If you preoccupy yourself with seeking first his kingdom and taking care of God's business, God will take care of your business. And so, and so God told David, I will provide a place for my people Israel and I will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed by the nations and that wicked people will not oppress them anymore as they did in the beginning. And, 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 having, done, and having done this, I will appoint leaders over my people Israel and I will subdue all the nations. And David replied, in verse 27 and said now you have pleased you have been pleased to bless the house of your servant that it may continue forever in your sight O lord and you have blessed it and it will be blessed forever some have speculated that this particular psalm can be dated back to the time when kings would ascend the throne and during a coronation ritual they would recite this particular psalm. Others again have speculated that this psalm was written when David's son Absalom had rebelled against him. But this particular psalm can be seen as a royal psalm, can be seen as a coronation psalm. But somewhere in the middle of this psalm, you begin to sense and feel that there's more to this psalm than just a royal psalm or a coronation psalm. There's a deeper message, a more comprehensive mes message that breaks the bonds of history. And while this is a royal psalm, it can be related as a messianic psalm because it finds full expression in the life of Jesus. Yeah. Amen. Amen. So from time to time, we're going to look through the psalm from a historical perspective as it being a royal psalm and then from time to time I'm going to switch and we're going to put on the lens of this uh, messianic lens. We're going to look at a psalm from a messianic perspective. But a royal psalm relates to the events surrounding the life of pre-exilic kings, the ascension to the throne and their departure for battle. What we mean by pre-exilic is is that the historical setting dates from the time of David to the time of Babylon before their exile. Psalm 2 gives us insight into the ideology of Jewish kingship and how kings were understood and how they understood themselves and their authority and their roles and their hopes and aspirations. 
Kings saw themselves and the people saw themselves, uh, saw kings in, in ancient times as God's anointed and chosen ones. This ideological view in ancient Near East believed that kings had a special relationship with God. And sometimes in, in the Middle East, often kings were, were considered deities. Now, according to Walton and Matthews in Mesopotamia in the middle uh, or mid-third millennium from Gilgamesh through to the kings such as Gudea, Hammurabi, and Ashurbanipal, and just to name a few names, it was part of a royal prerogative to claim divine heritage. And we saw this particularly when it came to the Egyptian kingship where Egyptian kings believed that they were conceived from the god, sun god, Ra himself. But this was not the case for the kings of Israel. They were considered sons of God, but not by nature. They were considered the sons of God by adoption and by covenant. And so during this time, kings were viewed as being anointed, and being God's son. This is why when Saul attempts to kill David and pursues the life of David, David refused to retaliate because he believed that Saul was God's anointed one and God's chosen one and a son of God. So when the messenger took credit for killing Saul and thought he's coming with good news, David actually killed the messenger because he said, touch not the anointed. And this was referred to in schools of theology as the theology of office, the office of the king. That's how Middle Eastern um, times respected and revered the, the office of the king. The purpose of the psalm and the big idea behind the psalm, if I don't get to it, <laughs> is simply this. Jesus reigns. That's the big idea. And so this psalm shows us the sovereign rule of God and how it's important to understand as believers that he is sovereign over all the affairs of the world. And what do we mean when we say God is sovereign? We, we, we mean that he created all things. And since he created all things, he is above all things. And over all things. And rules over all things. And knows all and can accomplish all. His sovereignty is represented on the earth by his anointed one that we see in Psalm 2. We also see that there is a human rebellion against the Lord and his anointed. And we see how the agenda comes to nothing. So an overview of the psalm is that this psalm is divided into four parts. Four nearly equal parts. And these parts play out in four scenes. These four scenes 
show us a movement from beginning to end. So from verse 1 to 3, we see the rebellion of the nations. From verses 4 to 6, we see the response of God who is enthroned. From verses 7 to 9, we see the decree that the anointed one recalls from the Lord his Father. And then from verses 10 to 12, we see a caution given to this rebellious nation, these rebellious nations and kings and rulers. We also see four voices in this particular psalm, if you didn't notice. From verses 1 to 3, we see the voice of the narrator, the psalmist. And he also quotes the rebellious nations. So we get to here, we introduce to the rebellious nations and their voice. Then from verses 4 to 6, we see the father speak. Then from verses 7 to 9, the son speaks, the anointed one speaks. And then lastly, from verses 10 to 12, the renator speaks again in a closing summary. When we were in Daniel, we made reference to chiasms. You remember chiasms? For those of you who weren't here, a chiasm is a structure that is repeated in reverse order. So this psalm is structured in a chiastic way. First we see from verses 1 to 3 the rebellion of the nations. Verses 4 to 6 God's rule in heaven. Verses 7 to 9 God's decree. Then we swing back full circle in response to the nations, rebellious nations. We see the rebellious nations on earth addressed. With chiastic structures, there's always a hinge. There's always a centerpiece. And I always look for it. And this psalm centers between verses 6 and 9. And mark it in your Bibles. This is the centerpiece of the psalm. The focal point. Where the Father speaks and then the Son speaks also. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree the Lord has said to me, You are my son today. I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with the rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. That is the centerpiece of the song. In Daniel, we saw that the centerpiece of the chiastic structure of Daniel was chapter 7, where Daniel introduces to us for the first time the Son of Man. Okay. And here again, we see Jesus take center stage. Now, what we do usually when we, when we preach is we have uh, a Bible topic, and then we'll get into our sermon. <coughs> so our Bible topic this morning is figures of speech in the, in the Psalms. As you know, the psalmists were Hebrew poets and musicians, and they wrote under inspiration the books of the psalms. The psalms were originally sung, originally recited. They were not letters or sermons or expositions. They were songs or poems that were sung. So it's important that if we're going to understand the psalms, we need to understand the literary techniques and evocative language that is used. The purpose of poetry, Hebrew poetry, is to illustrate a message in a language that is vivid and colorful. 
Reichen explains that poetry is heightened speech, far more composed than prose. Prose is an ordinary form of writing. Whereas expository prose uses sentences or paragraphs as a basic unit of thought and theme. And narratives use episodes or scenes. Hebrew poetry uses images and figures of speech to communicate to us. So in the New Testament, you might get a paragraph, a chapter, um, that would explain godliness. And in an Old Testament narrative, you might get a story in which a character displays godliness to us. But in the Psalms, the Hebrew poet will express godliness in a picture and in an image, and you'll say it's like a tree planted by the streams of the river which brings forth fruit in a season. What is a figure of speech? A figure of speech is an intentional deviation from literal statements or common usage of communication. It emphasizes and clarifies or embellishes both written and spoken language. And the aim of figures of speech and figurative language is to inventively accentuate the effect of what's being said and turn your ears into eyes. <clears throat> Types of figures of speech used in the Psalms you might be familiar with. I'm going to take you back to school. Come on. Yeah. Similes. Similes is a comparison using the terms like or as. Secondly, metaphors. Metaphors are direct comparisons without the use of words like like or as. And then you'll find allegories. An allegory is an extended metaphor. Psalm 80 from verses 8 to 16 is an example of an extended metaphor. Where the Bible says in Psalm 80, you have brought a vine out of Egypt. You have cast out the nations and planted it. You prepared room for it and caused it to take deep root. And it will fill the land. The hills were covered with its shadow and the mighty cedars with its bows. And you see how Egypt, uh, Israel is being compared to a vine in an extended fashion. Fourthly, we have a figure of speech called metonymy. This is where one object or concept is substituted for another and it's related to another object or concept. We see an example of this in Psalm 73 verse 9 where the Bible says, They set their mouth against the heavens and their tongue walks through the earth. This is where Tongue, or the word or the concept mouth is being substituted with the concept of a tongue. It's one and the same thing. And then we have, uh, fifthly, a figure of speech that you'll find commonly in, in the Psalms uh, called synecdoche. A synecdoche is when a part is made to represent the whole. A part is made to represent the whole. And we have an example of this in Psalm 24, verses 3 to 4. The Bible says, 
who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? Or who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. So hearts and hands are made to represent your whole life in worship. Select the key. And then my favorite, sometimes my family doesn't understand when I use hyperbole. They think I'm being negative, I'm just being dramatic, I just like the effect. Hyperbole, please listen, Elliot family. Hyperbole is a deliberate exaggeration for dramatic effect. So Psalm 18, verse 7 to 8 is an example of hyperbole. Then the earth shook and trembled, the foundations of the hills also quaked and were shaken because God was angry. Now did that really literally happen? No. No. Didn't happen. Smoke went up from his nostrils. Really? No. It's figurative language. Hyperbole. And devouring fire from his mouth and coals were kindled by it. So when it comes to this form of, of figurative language, the poet is using his poetic license. And this is where many of us get thrown off. Especially when we come to the book of Revelations. <laughs> oh, we get right off the road, off the rails. And so the poet uses his poetic license and is not to be interpreted literally. And then we have uh, another form of, uh, of figurative language called anthropomorphism. It's a big word, this. Anthropomorphism. This is when human-like qualities and attributes are, are ascribed to God. They're given to God. And um, you, see, you see this also expressed in Genesis when God creates the heavens and the earth in six days and the Bible says he takes a rest. And it almost conveys the idea that, you know, he walked, he was mixing dagger, building a bricklayer and he was exhausted and he just took a break and like he rested, you know. It's called anthropomorphism. Human attributes applied to God. Okay. Second Chronicles 16, the eyes of the Lord roam to and fro the earth. His eyes are not literally roaming the earth. No. Anthropomorphism. And then lastly, there are, there are many figures of speech. And I'm just going to end on this last one. Zoomorphism. Okay, I'm probably going to go back and listen to my audio and, <laughs> like, hey, Grenville usually catches me after this, <laughs> so you pronounce that wrong. <laughs> Brother's killing my vibe. <laughs> Zoomorphism, okay? This is when we assign some parts of an animal to God's person, okay, to convey a certain truth about God. There's a classic example is uh, Psalm 57 verse 1. Be merciful unto me, O God, be merciful unto me, for my soul trusts in you. Even in the shadow of your wings, I will take refuge. 
God don't have wings, family. It's painting the picture of a hen or an eagle protecting its young one. Okay? This is a classic example of zoomorphism. Okay? Okay. So, poetry and figurative language is an incredible tool of communication. Okay? Learning to identify it and learning to decode figurative language will help bring us to a closer meaning of scripture. Amen. 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 Now, there is a relationship between Psalm 1 and Psalm 2, and it's argued that Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 were originally one psalm. In fact, in the Hebrew, uh, Hebrew text, it's considered one psalm. But others believe that Psalm 2 is a continuation or extension of Psalm 1. C. Hassel Bullock states that when the editor of the book and of the psalms composed Psalm 1, he composed Psalm 1 with Psalm 2 in mind. And like a tailor, he stitched them together with verbal threads, providing an interpretive code. The first interpretive code we have is the use of what's called an inclusio. Okay, and the last time we spoke about this, an inclusio is a written technique where an author places a word, a phrase, or a theme at the beginning and at the end. Like, like two ends of a bookshelf, you know, like book ends on a library shelf. So you will see Psalm 1 begins with the Hebrew term Ashrei, which is blessed. And the final line and thought of Psalm 2 ends with the same word, blessed, forming an inclusio between two of the Psalms. The reason for this is that the psalmist and the editor wanted to join two themes together, the theme of Psalm 1 and the theme of Psalm 2. The theme of, of Psalm 1 is the Torah and obedience and meditation on the law of God and the theme of Psalm 2 is the coming Messiah and kingdom of God and he linked these uh, dual themes together to set the tone for the entire, entire books of, of the Psalms. These are double doors into the Psalms. So Psalm 2 we, we, we see as the conclusion to Psalm 1, not a sequel necessarily. If we are going to understand Psalm 2, we have to uh, view Psalm 2 through the lens of Psalm 1. And so the sec second interpretive code uh, we have uh, is that Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 make use of the same Hebrew verb in its introductory remarks. And the term is uh, Hagar which uh, according to James Strong means to groan, growl, meditate, moan, it's a noisy muttering of med meditation. And so in Psalm 1, uh, we see this word uh, translated positively as meditate. But in Psalm 2, we see this translated in a negative sense in the, in the second line of verse 1 as plot. It's the same Hebrew term, but it's translated differently because context informs translation. Amen. Okay. And so the third interpretive code we have is that the writer reinforces the contrast between the, the doctrine of and the teaching of two parts. Remember we spoke about the doctrine of two parts. Okay. So in Psalm 1 verse 6, 
uh, it concludes stating, For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. Two parts laid be before us. Uh, two kinds of people laid before us. Two judgments laid before us. And in Psalm 2 verse 12 ends on a similar note and in the exact same way, kiss the son, show devotion to the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. And so that verb perish also serves as another indicator in that that term is also used in Psalm 1 verse 60, ungodly shall perish. There is a way that seems right to man, but that way leads to destruction. And Jesus taught this doctrine of two parts when he said there, there is a broad road that leads to destruction and many are they that travel there. But there is a narrow way that leads to life and godliness. And few there is that travel there. The fourth interpretive code we have is that Psalms 1 begins with a beatitude and Psalms 2 concludes with a beatitude. Psalm 1 verse 1, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. Psalm 2 verse 12, Blessed are those who put their trust in him. Yeah. Amen. Amen. And so Michael Wilcock helpfully points out to us that it's the private world of Psalms 1 that opens up into the public world of Psalm 2. We have the doctrine of two parts laid out in Psalm 1 in a micro level and in psalm 2 we have the doctrine of two parts laid out to us on a macro level and so psalm 1 we see how we see how an individual resists the word of god and walks in disobedience but in psalms 2 we are shown the impact of when nations disobey the word of god and walk in disobedience and so Eugene Peterson states, Psalm 1 is a laser concentration of the person. And Psalm 2 is a wide angle lens on politics. And it's also stated that Psalm 1 declares the Lord's authority over us as individuals. And Psalm 2 declares the Lord's authority over nations. Both of these truths are so important for our faith. Both truths are important because it's difficult to trust God and to trust that He is in control of the affairs of your life if you don't believe that He controls the unfolding and outworking of the affairs of history. It's easy to trust God with your little life when you know that he holds the whole world in his hands amen so the point behind psalm 2 is that god reigns over all the nations of the earth and so verses 1 to 3 states why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing and the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. <coughs> the structure of the psalm unfolds and plays out like we said in four scenes. This is the first scene that has been set before us. 
and we introduce to the first voice which is the voice of the narrator the psalmist who very abruptly plunges us straight into the main theme of the psalms and we are faced with the unrest of the nations and he brings us into this focus uh, uh, and we and we begin to focus on nations that are rebellious nations that are at unrest nations who are showing hostility towards the sovereign rule of God what in the world is going on we are introduced to nations people kings and rulers these four groups of people are depicted to us here in a literary mechanism known as synonymous parallelism remember our teaching on someone we spoke about parallelism this is an example of synonymous parallelism synonymous parallelism is a repetition of one idea in successive lines so he introduces us to the nations that are raging against the Lord and then that takes the predominant idea, that's the main idea and in successive lines he's just describing these, this, these nations in a synonymous fashion and so we introduce to the people that are, are, are plotting and the kings of the earth and the rulers of the earth and we see how their rage is not simply confined to mere emotionalism but it translates into plotting and scheming these revolutionaries band together like a bunch of pygmies standing face to face with the colossal giant and they are ascribed verbs and they are responsive in four ways bible tells us they rage they plot, they set themselves, and they counsel together against the Lord. Now, in Psalm 1, we were introduced to the Hebrew word Hagar. And in Psalm 2, and Psalm 2 verse 1, we introduced to the same word Hagar, which is translated as plot. So we see a contrast between the righteous who are given to meditation on the word of God and then we see in Psalm 2 the nations that are given to plotting and scheming but the Bible says here that the nations that are raging and the people that are plotting are plotting a vain thing so in Psalm 1 we we are shown how fruitful a life can be when it's given to meditation on the Word of God. In Psalm 2, we are shown how vain and what a wasted effort it is to plot and scheme against the Lord and His sovereign rule. And so we have this hostility and rage of the nations and sinister scheming of the people that are directed towards the Lord. Now, from a a royal psalm perspective we can apply this to the davidic kingdom and like we mentioned that the kings of israel were chosen and appointed by god like like in the case of saul and david they were appointed by god and the prophet uh, nathan came and anointed samuel came and anointed the kings and so i want you to know that 
when you look at the word anointed in verse 2, and the Bible says uh, that they took counsel and, and they plotted against the Lord and he's anointed. It's important to understand that the term anointed in Hebrew means, uh, and it means Mesach. And Mesach is translated or transliterated into the term Messiah. So when you were a king and anointed by a prophet, you were a Messiah. In the sense that you are the anointed. Because Messiah means anointed. The Greek equivalent to that is Christos, Christ. So in a sense, the king of Judah and Israel is the Christ of the nation. The anointed one of the nation. The Messiah of the nation. So, the psalmist introduces us to this first scene and it's not difficult to to see that he's bewildered and he's totally astonished by the senseless rage and the sinister scheming of the nations and he sees that this rage is directed towards the Lord and he's anointed one and so he asks a rhetorical question why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? And it's the why in this question that sets the tone in the scene that is playing out before us. While this is a rhetorical question, I think it's important to actually look at it and ask why. You know, why are they raging? Now, if we look at this through the lens of being a coronation psalm, C.S. Bullock suggests that Whenever there was a shifting of power in a nation and a king, a newly appointed king would ascend to the throne. Usually this psalm was, was recited out. And usually vassal nations, you know, subordinate nations, a nations that were under the rule of another nation, when they, when they witnessed this shift in power, they would see the nation as being at a point of vulnerability. And that's when they would begin to scheme, plot, and see how they could break free from the rule of this nation. But James May states that the logic of the psalm is not historical, but rather theological. In other words, when you look back over the history of Israel and when you look over the scriptures themselves, you can find no historical occurrence for such a rebellion not in the Davidic dynasty not at all so it's my belief that the psalmist is using his poetic license here and he's prophetically giving us a parabolic picture of a time when this would find when these events would find fulfillment in the life of Jesus who is the Son of God and who is our Messiah. Now, verse 2 tells us that these rulers rage and they come together and they take counsel together, they band together. Now, firstly, it is hard to picture political leaders of, of this kind 
come together and agree on anything unless there is a common enemy that they find a threat. And so they all come together assuming that there's power in their numbers. They come together, they band together, they form a confederation, a confederacy, they make an alliance and they assume they assume that they can find strength in their numbers against the Lord. This psalm really shows us the nature of sin. The sin in its rawest form is a rebellion. It's cosmic treason. It's the most wicked and daring against the only perfect lawgiver of the universe. Sin in its raw form is a rage and fury against God. If sin could have its way, it would annihilate the government of God. If sin had its way, it would dethrone God. This is true of the nature of sin. Sin seeks to deify man and humanize God. Exalt man and humble God. It seeks to exalt itself over the throne of God and to glorify the creature rather than the creator. This is the very nature of sin. But what's what's astonishing here is that the sinful nature of the raging nations brings them to a a place of senselessness assuming that they could have a fighting chance against God (laughs) that's the nature of sin and that's what sin will do sin sin will make you stupid (laughs) make you senseless imagine that thinking you have a fighting chance in your numbers against the God of the universe who spoke everything into being in existence with his breath to think that in the sinful rebellious hearts of these men and nations and rulers they could have a fighting chance against God is ridiculous but that's the nature of sin What's wrong with the world? The world is at war with God and His anointed one. To answer why the nations are raging and why the people and the rulers of the world are conspiring against the Lord, the answer is found in verse 3 where we hear the voice of the nations, the voice of the rebellious, the voice of these revolutionaries where they say, let us break their bonds in pieces. And cast away the accords from us. This was their mission statement. This was their motivation. They did not want to be constrained by divine authority. They viewed the constraints of God as restricting. They viewed the constraints of God and the rule of God as as slavery. And in layman's terms they are saying... 
We don't want to be under the rule of God. We don't want to serve the sovereignty of God. We don't want to serve the anointed one. His commandments are too burdensome. His yoke is too heavy. They find the yoke of Christ difficult to bear. But I want to ask you a question. Is a tree really free when it uproots itself? Is a train really free off the rails? Is a fish really free when it's removed from the water in which it exists? We are never truly free when we are out of the relationship with our Creator. No soul is free when it's in rebellion against its Creator. And we see the nations raging today saying we don't want this yoke we don't we don't want this truth I want my truth this is my truth we live in a hostile world and in a culture that is at war with God a culture that is seeking to remove the constraints of God a culture that is resistant to the truth of God's Word a culture that is hostile to God and will go at any length to remove his yoke. And for a long time you've seen it. For a long time we've seen it. That Hollywood is at war with God. The name of Jesus has been blasphemed and ridiculed like no other name. We see it in the governments of this world. Which are drafting and passing bills and legislation that contradicts the word of God. We're living in a time where man and nations are resisting God's design of marriage, God's design of male and females. The nations are raging and resisting the yoke of God. We saw it at the Grammys this year. You'll even see it in the gospel industry from time to time. What is going on with the world? The world is raging. And the world wants to be free from the bonds of God. And so in this first scene, we see the rebellious rage and plot. And now the psalmist makes a sudden shift. And the shift moves from the rebellion of the nations and it moves to the response of God in heaven. The Bible says from verse 4 to 6, He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and, in, and distress them in his deep displeasure, saying, Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. Isn't it encouraged to know that when God sees the rebellion of men, that he doesn't overlook it. Yeah. That rebellion does not go unnoticed by God. He's not going to sit back and do nothing. And so we see the, the scene shift to heaven and we hear the voice of God. God speaks. And we see a contrast here between the first scene and the second scene between the first stanza and the second stanza we see that 
the first stanza closes off with the quotation of the rebellious nations. Let us break uh, their bonds in pieces and cast the accords from us. And then we see the second stanza also closes off with the quotation, but from the Lord. And he says, I have set my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. The response of God stands in direct contrast to the rebellion of the nations. And we see God, the psalmist, begin to depict God in an anthropomorphic way. In other words, he's painting a picture of God in human likeness to us. And God is pictured sitting back and laughing. He's laughing. Now the first response I want to draw your attention to is the fact that God is seated. He's seated. He's enthroned. And he's enthroned upon the highest seat of power. The second thing I want to draw your attention to is that he is seated. He's not flinched. He's not in the least bit concerned or perturbed or surprised or flustered or running around like a cut chicken's neck, like a chicken with a cut neck, saying, what am I going to do? Let's call in the troops. No. God is so unmoved and unflustered that he's depicted as laughing. And that is what human rebellion is. Human rebellion is divine comedy. God looks at it and he laughs. But his laugh is not funny. Because three times in the Psalms, the scriptures record for us that God laughs. And once in Proverbs 1 verse 26, the, the author tells us God is laughing. But each time God laughs in scripture, it has to do with his response to evil. That means when God laughs, you should be terrified. <laughs> Bullock tells us that this particular laugh is a, a mocking kind of laugh and the laugh of terror. He is laughing because he is not a God in the hands of angry sinners. These are sinners in the hands of an angry God. And it always amazes me that we are so reluctant on this side of the grave to talk about the wrath of God. We cherry pick all the verses and attributes of God in scripture. And in this form of evangelism, we tell people, God loves you. God has a plan for you. But this is a half truth. And a half truth is a lie. Because Romans, 1, Romans 11 verse 12 states that we should, brethren, consider both the kindness and the severity of God. Yeah. Romans 1 verse 18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and the unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Hebrews 10 verse 31 says, It is a fearful thing 
to fall into the hands of an angry God. Are we recalling these scriptures, family? C.H. Mahaney says that only those who are truly aware of God's wrath can be amazed by His grace. When you understand that outside of Christ we were the objects of His wrath. Ephesians chapter 2 says and you he made alive who are dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked according to the course of this world and according to the course of the prince of the power of the air the spirit of which works in the sons of disobedience work in you and you once conducted yourselves in the lust of the flesh and who by nature were children of wrath that's why Romans 5 tells us for while we were enemies enemies of God we were reconciled to God to the death of his son and having been reconciled by the death of his son how much more shall we be saved by his life I like to think of God's wrath as God's justice in action and in this week I got to speak uh, with uh, with another church on the part of the our father that says forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors and i mentioned to them that sin is sin is spoken of in the lord's prayer as a debt because it's a debt with divine justice when we sin we contract a death a, a, a debt with god's justice and because he is a good God, he cannot allow yeah. sin to go unpunished. Mm-hmm. And so the psalmist, the psalmist is saying that God is angry. And he's going to hold these nations in derision. And he's laughing at them. And his wrath is, is displayed. And he wants to show these defiant kings who's on the throne and he says it's too late I've already set my king on Mount Zion he wants them to know that his king is already enthroned and his king is going to execute his will and his king is the king of kings and the Lord of Lords and so you'll see this contrast between verses 2 and verses 6 where these kings of the earth have set themselves and this has two ideas to it firstly they set themselves in military military language they they take arms and they and they set themselves ready to war but the but but the second idea is that they they have appointed themselves and installed themselves and god is saying see i i have installed my king you've set yourself you've installed yourself you appointed yourself but I've appointed my king this is one of the problems we have in the body of Christ today we have too many self-appointed leaders that have not been divinely called and they are by nature self-serving and they are by nature gods to themselves and if you become a god to yourself you become a devil to others and and, and so god says 
I have appointed my king and, and my authority has been given to him and he seeks the good of the nations. And then the scene shifts again. And now this, the scene shifts and we get to hear the voice of the anointed. And we introduce to the voice of the narrator in verse 1, uh, in, in, this, in the first scene, in the second scene, we and we introduce the voice of the rebellion in the first scene as well. And in the, in the second scene, we introduce to the voice of the Father, of the Lord, of Yahweh. And then now to the third scene, we introduce to the Messiah's voice, the Christ, the anointed one, his king. And what does the anointed one do? He recalls the decree that the Father had spoken to him. He recalls what the Father has spoken to him. Now from a royal psalm perspective, a decree is a document that is given to a king during a coronation ceremony. It is a personal covenant between God and the king and God's commitment to the king. And so the content of this decree establishes the nature and authority of the newly crowned king. And Kidna states that verse 7 is the centerpiece and the focal point of the psalm where the anointed one says, The Lord has said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Kidna goes on to state that verse 7, this decree, is the long-awaited answer from verses 1 to 5 and this decree is expounded in verses 8 to 12. Now when Jesus comes onto the scene in Mark 1, what is the central theme of his message? Repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. So he comes into Galilee in Mark chapter 1 and he's preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God saying the time is fulfilled the kingdom of God is at hand repent and believe in the gospel and then and then if we if we reflect back on when Jesus time of ministry started he comes to John to be baptized by John and John says no I'm not even worthy to unstrap your sandals but Jesus convinced him and persuaded, persuaded him and said suffer to be so that that I might fulfill all righteousness and Jesus is baptized and when Jesus is baptized, the heavens open. And the Holy Spirit descends upon him as a dove. And the Father speaks. And the Father said, this is my beloved son. This is my king. And so while Jesus is announcing that the kingdom of God is at hand and the kingdom of God is amongst you, in effect what he's saying is that the king is here. And this prophetic declaration has shaped the ministry of Jesus. There on the Mount of Transfiguration, when he took his closest disciples, where he spoke with Elijah and Moses. And Peter and the disciples wanted to, to build three tents in honor to these three men. And the Father spoke again and said, This is my beloved Son. Hear ye him. So we see these words spoken of by the Father to the Son and over the Son at His baptism and at His transfiguration. This divine decree, this decree from the Father 
speaks to the royalty of Jesus and the divine nature of Jesus. Now from a royal psalm perspective, the decree expands on the pledge of adoption that God had given David's heir in 2 Samuel 7 verse 14. That, that would be Solomon and all he says. And he declared that I will be his father and he will be my son. These words have been spoken of by the prophet during the coronation. So when the father speaks today, and when he says the, the words today, it's marking a moment when the new sovereign, when the new king would formally take up his inheritance and his titles. Now from a messianic perspective, this decree is very much connected with the resurrection of Jesus. Because while Paul is ministering, uh, you'll, you'll see in, in Antioch, you see in Acts chapter 13, you can make a note of that, in Acts chapter 13 from verse 26, Paul is preaching and he says this, he says, Men and brethren, sons of the family of, of Abraham, and those who are among you who fear God, to you the word of salvation has been sent. For those who dwell in Jerusalem and the rulers because they do not know him, nor even the voices of the prophets which are, which are read every Sabbath, having fulfilled them in condemning them, and though they found no cause of death in Jesus, they asked Pilate that he should be put to death. Now when they had fulfilled all that was written concerning him, they took him down the tree and laid him in a tomb, but God raised him from the dead. He was seen many days by those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are his witnesses to the people, and we declare to you glad tidings, the promise which was made to the fathers, God has fulfilled us to our children, in that he raised Christ, he raised Jesus from the dead. As it is also written in the second psalm, You are my son, and today I have begotten you. Paul goes on to say, And he raised Jesus from the dead, and no more to return to corruption, because thus he spoke, I will give you the sure mercies of David. In Romans 1, Paul declares, he says, I'm a bond servant of the Lord Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle. Um, uh, I've been separated to the gospel of God, which he promised through uh, his prophets the Holy, in the Holy Scriptures concerning Jesus, um, the Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection of Jesus. He was declared to be the Son of God with the power, with the with power according to the Spirit of Holiness by the resurrection of the dead. He was declared to be the Son of God by the resurrection from the dead. And this decree was spoken to Jesus over and over again. Now, just as we motorboat as we motorboat in acts chapter 4 peter is preaching to the jews and uh, him and john get taken captive they get beaten and then they begin to pray for boldness okay they begin to pray for boldness and then as they're praying 
Peter prays and says, Lord, you are God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them who by the mouth of your servant David have said, why did the nations rage and the people plot vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly, verse 27, for truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and with the people of Israel all were gathered together to do whatever your hand had purposed and determined before. These opening statements or these, these opening lines point straight to the crucifixion of Jesus. When Jesus was under Roman trial, all the religious and national rulers came together in fact, Herod and Pilate became friends from that day forward. Luke 23 verse 12 says, And the Pharisees and the, and the Sadducees had a common cause, for truly in this city uh, against your holy servant Jesus, whom, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together. Yeah. They all gathered together to rage against Jesus. And if you will look at the Cree again for me. The anointed king responds and, and recalls the, the, the words of the father to him and says, The Lord has anointed me and said, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possessions. Do you remember verse 1? And the nations rule. Rage. And the people plot. So the answer of God to the raging nations is a promise to his son. He says the same nations that rage, I'm going to give you them. I'm going to give you the same nations that rage against men. In this, even in his wrath, even in his judgment, we see mercy. So what does Jesus do? After he dies, he's buried, and he's resurrected from the dead, he comes up to his disciples and he says, All authority and power has been given to me in heaven and earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all the things that I have commanded and what does he do again he tells him in Acts chapter 1 wait and tarry for the Holy Spirit to come and when he comes you shall be my witnesses to Jerusalem Judea Samaria and to the ends of the earth Daniel chapter 7 in Daniel's vision he says he saw a picture of the Son of Man and all dominion and glory and a kingdom was given to him that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. Sure. And in closing, we turn to our final scene. We now fall back to the voice, full circle, to the voice of the narrator, the psalmist. And so he turns and says, Now therefore be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. And when his wrath is kindled but a little, blessed are those 
who put their trust in him. In this closing summary, the poet takes up a moment to pelt out five imperatives for these nations. Five imperatives, he says, be wise, be instructed, serve the Lord with fear, rejoice with trembling, and kiss the sun. And the reference of kissing the sun speaks to both allegiance, repentance, and worship. But note how Psalm 1 verse 6 closes. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. And notice how Psalm 2 verse 12 ends. Closes on the same thought. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. And the psalmist gives, literally throws a lifeline to the nations. And he says the only way you are going to escape God is to run to him. The only way to flee from God is to flee to God. <laughs> you see, uh, we're not safe from hell, family. No, 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 no. Reason why we we come to God. And the reason why we are saved is because we are saved from God. Mm. And yes, the irony is that we can only be saved from God, by God. Because if God is against you, who can stand for you? The only way to escape the judgment of God and the wrath of God is to encounter His grace and His mercy in Christ Jesus who took the, His wrath for us and who stood in judgment for us. We are saved by God from God. And Isaiah chapter 53 states, Surely Christ has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed Him stricken and smitten by God and afflicted. But He was wounded for our transgressions and bruised for iniquities, and the chastisement of our peace was upon him. He took the punishment for us. What an incredible display of God's grace. What an incredible display of God's mercy in the final appeal of the psalmist to the rebellious nations. It's an appeal for the nations to turn from rage to repentance. To show affection and allegiance to the Son. And he closes off with the beatitude. Blessed are those who put their trust in him. What do we learn from Psalm 2 in a nutshell? God made us and we are accountable to him. And he rules over all the affairs of life. We also learn that outside of his saving grace, we are on a collision with his judgment. We also learn that he made a way of escape, and that's through his king. And lastly, we learn 
that there is a way of escape if we choose to honor and serve and put our trust in his lordship and rule amen amen, amen. god bless you family can we stand this morning <laughs>